Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. I'm speaking to you from month three, or is it month four, of the Great Confinement. I'm not quite sure which at this point. Our world headquarters in New York remains shuttered, and our staff is busy doing missionary work all over the face of the earth. Some of us are in South Korea, others in the country of Georgia, the states of Texas, Virginia, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts. We're a far-flung crowd. Nevertheless, we've been diligently beavering away, and I'm pleased to bring you the June 2020 issue of the new Criterion. It will be arriving in your mailbox very soon if you're a subscriber, and it is already online for those who prefer to read the magazine digitally. As many of you will remember, we had to cancel our annual Edmund Burke Gala this year. Our honoree is Lord Conrad Black, member of the British House of Lords, historian, polemicist, biographer, warrior for culture. Lord Black had intended to speak to us about Donald Trump and Edmund Burke, an unusual conjunction, and I'm pleased to say that he has given us the remarks that he had intended to make, and we are proud to provide them for you and your reading pleasure in our June issue. I think you'll find his essay both illuminating and amusing. We also have several other features of note in this June issue. A really terrific piece by Gary Saul Morrison on Alexander Herzen, the 19th century Russian revolutionary who made such a deep impression on Dostoevsky. You won't want to miss that piece. It's called The God That Flickered. Since we are moving into summer, it seemed only appropriate to provide something of a more allegro nature, and I'm pleased that we were able to include Nicola Schumann's Leaping the Fence, a very invigorating essay about gardens and fashion. You won't want to miss that either. Our last feature is by Jacob Howland, and it's devoted to Beowulf. But this is not a merely academic exercise looking at the great Anglo-Saxon classic. No, this is Beowulf for our time. It's a searing look into the very heart of culture. I'm very proud to have that essay. I think it's a classic. Beowulf and history. Don't miss it. Let me now bring you our notes and comments for June 2020. There are two of them. The first is called The Dark Side of Farce. Karl Marx did not make many witty remarks, but his oft-quoted observation that history tends to repeat itself, quote, first as tragedy, then as farce, is a mot for the ages. We thought of that line directly when we got the news that Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times had received a Pulitzer Prize for the lead essay in its series of pieces and related initiatives known collectively as the 1619 Project. In January, we reported on the 1619 Project. It was, we said, a, quote, stupefying race-based fantasy about the origins of the United States, end quote. 
We quoted the essay by Hannah Jones, who claimed that, quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery, end quote. Indeed, according to Hannah Jones and her fellow Fantasists, America was started and perpetuated as a slaveocracy. The entire country, they asserted, was built on the system of slavery inaugurated when the first English privateer carrying African slaves hove into view off the coast of Virginia in August 1619. Eminent historians from the left, right, and center lined up to repudiate this racially charged distortion of American history. That included the World Socialist website, and let us insert a notional exclamation mark here, which ran long interviews with James McPherson and Gordon Wood, among the most distinguished historians of the American founding. Neither was consulted by the perpetrators of the 1619 project. Both recoiled from its distortions, simplifications, and outright falsehoods. McPherson trod delicately, but nonetheless concluded with the brutal assessment that the 1619 project provided, quote, a very unbalanced, one-sided account which lacked context and perspective on the complexity of slavery. Wood concurred and went further. The idea that the American Revolution was fomented in order to protect slavery is simply ridiculous. On the contrary, Wood noted, quote, it is the northern states in 1776 that are the world's leaders in the anti-slavery cause. The revolution unleashed anti-slavery sentiments that led to the first abolition movement in the history of the world. Princeton's Alan C. Gelzo, writing in City Journal, echoed these sentiments. Quote, the 1619 project, he wrote, is not history, it is polemic, born in the imaginations of those whose primary target is capitalism itself and who hope to tarnish capitalism by associating it with slavery. But truth does not matter when there is a political agenda to be advanced. Considered as an intellectual artifact, the 1619 Project has been thoroughly, utterly discredited. Considered as a call to action, however, it has gone from success to success. In January, we noted that, quote, various public school districts, including some in Chicago, had announced that they would supplement their curricula by distributing copies of the 1619 Project to students. We didn't know the half of it. As we write, the wildly tendentious, historically dubious tenets of the 1619 Project have been insinuated into the curricula of more than 3,500 school districts across the country. There is more to come, including new calls for race-based reparations on the basis of the falsehoods promulgated by the 1619 Project. All of this is tragedy. The farce is now upon us. Quoth the Pulitzer citation. 
for a sweeping and deeply reported and personal essay for the groundbreaking 1619 project which seeks to place the enslavement of Africans at the center of America's story, prompting public conversation about the nation's founding and evolution. End quote. Deeply personal and egregiously false. Among the Times' allies in this effort to revolutionize the teaching of American history on the basis of a malign racialist fantasy is the Pulitzer Center, which declared that it was proud to be the education partner for the 1619 Project. All the news reports noting the participation of the Pulitzer Center were careful to point out that it was not affiliated with the Pulitzer Prizes. Not officially, perhaps. But with the news that the Times had awarded itself a Pulitzer Prize for the lead essay from the 1619 Project, the facade of independence cracked. Awarded itself? Isn't there an independent committee that decides who and what institutions receive that prize? Of course there is. It's just that it is controlled de facto, if not de jure, by the Times and a handful of like-minded entities, which, of course, is the reason that the Times has accumulated so many of them. The last time we visited the paper's offices was many years ago, back when it was on West 43rd Street. The hallway full of photographs of Pulitzer winners was impressive. There they all were, from Walter Durante, the Times' man in the Soviet Union under Stalin, on down. Quote, any report of a famine in Russia is today an exaggeration or malignant propaganda, Durante wrote at the height of Stalin's forced famine in the early 1930s. Nicole Hannah-Jones will make a fitting addition to that gallery. There is a sense in which the Pulitzer Prizes and the New York Times deserve one another. When they are not giving awards to anti-capitalist, racially charged fictions masquerading as history, or tendentious, politicized fictions like the investigations into non-existent collusion between Donald Trump and the Russians, for which they awarded themselves a prize last year, they are giving themselves to twisted, new-age self-dramatizations such as the undying, pain, vulnerability, mortality, medicine, art, time, dreams, data, exhaustion, cancer, and care by Anne Boyer. Quote, an elegant and unforgettable narrative about the brutality of illness and the capitalism of cancer care in America. The capitalism of cancer care? But the real lesson of the Times' new Pulitzer is something that can be farcical without being funny. Or, more to the point, it can be farcical while still being malicious. It was absurd that a piece of something so disreputable and intellectually bankrupt as the 1619 Project should be awarded a Pulitzer Prize. But the sad, if almost incredible, truth is that in some quarters, such an award still confers prestige upon the recipient, as even publishing in the New York Times does, or so we are told. And that is the problem. Gelzo was doubtless right when he noted in the Wall Street Journal recently that while those associated with the 1619 Project will waive the Pulitzer as, quote, credibility insurance, credibility 
isn't the same as truth. Indeed, but the question is whether truth even comes into consideration in what passes for mainstream journalism today. That is part of the farce. Back in January, we wondered whether an unintended collateral benefit of this maligned folly will be finally at last, to dissolve the vestiges of that prestige and expose the times to the condign contempt of the public whose trust they have so extravagantly betrayed. Alas, the Pulitzer Prize argues against that happy eventuality. As a writer for The Federalist noted, giving the Times a Pulitzer Prize for a part of the 1619 project give schools one more excuse to hate America. For the Times and its allies, we suspect, that is reason enough to celebrate. Who cares about the truth? Now we have many thanks and a few farewells. For many years now, it has been our custom as we approach the end of our publishing season to recognize our most dedicated donors in this space. This pleasant task, which also affords us an opportunity to look back over the past year, is made all the more poignant because of the disruptions caused by the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Our offices have been shuttered since mid-March, and it is unclear when the authorities will allow our world headquarters in New York to reopen. Our staff is scattered across the country and the world Texas, Florida, Virginia, Connecticut, and even South Korea. This added a new layer of complication to the editorial process for our April, May, and June issues. It also prevented us from holding public events and seeing many of you. But here we are. We have soldiered on. The New Criterion is a small, not-for-profit enterprise that simply could not prevail without the support of its readers. We take no money from the government, and so are doubly grateful for every gift, no matter what size. We are especially grateful that the number of people contributing to support our endeavors continues to grow. Every gift matters. We are particularly indebted to those who, by donating $25,000 or more to our efforts, qualify as members of the New Criterion's editor's circle. Now more than ever, you make our work possible. We are pleased to have this opportunity to register our gratitude, not only for this important material support, but also for the interest, care, and counsel so many of our supporters offer us. The truth is that most of those who help us are not just writers of checks, but also intellectual comrades in arms, friends and collaborators in the task of battling cultural amnesia and fostering honest and informed inquiry into the great questions that confront us as a civilization, Chirka 2020. As in years past, we would like to begin by acknowledging our debt to the late lamented John M. Olin Foundation, which helped to start the new criterion in the early 1980s, and to the late Donald Kahn, whose timely and munificent generosity rescued the magazine at a moment of exigent economic peril. 
In the same category of munificence belong the Lined and Harry Bradley Foundation and the Sarah Scaife Foundation, both of which have generously supported the new criterion for decades. They are the conditiones sine qua non of our work. This year, we are also delighted to thank the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, Elizabeth Ailes, the Carson Meyer Charitable Foundation, the Richard H. Dreyfus Foundation, Brandon Frad, the Gale Foundation, the Gilder Foundation, the Hickory Foundation, the Klein-Schmidt Family Foundation, the Thomas D. Klingenstein Fund, Christopher Laconi, Ronald and Joe Carroll Lauder, the Marcus Foundation, the Paul Marshall Charitable Foundation, the Fred Maytag Family Foundation, Don and Donna Riley, the Thomas W. Smith Foundation, the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation, and Helen Zell. Finally, we, we would like to acknowledge that great, but too seldom recognized force for good, Anonymous, whose benefactions, once again, have been critical in helping us man the ramparts of cultural renewal. We are deeply grateful to you all. Thank you once again for your counsel, for your intellectual as well as your financial support. The new criterion could not exist without you. On a sadder note, we would also like to take a moment to mark the recent passing of the artist William Bailey, a contributor to our pages and a friend of the editors. Martha Apgar, another friend and longtime supporter of the magazine. And Richard Gilder, a major contributor to so many worthy enterprises, including the new criterion. Finally, it is with sorrow that we note the death of Esther Kramer, for some 50 years the devoted wife of our founding editor, Hilton Kramer. Requiescant omnes in pace. This is Roger Kimball signing off for the new criterion. I look forward to speaking with you again in September. <laughs>